All these things we ask through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine something with me this morning. And I think it will require some imagination because not too many of us have probably ever done this before. But imagine working not just five days a week, but six days a week. And not just eight hours a day, but ten hours a day. And not going into your air-conditioned office or, you know, going into work or even going to the job site where you, where you might be, where there's lunch breaks. But you're going to go out in the woods with an axe that you yourself sharpened. And for ten hours a day, for six days, you're going to do nothing but chop down trees and chop wood. Anybody feeling kind of sore? You're feeling the, the, the blisters on your hand already? Then imagine taking the wood from that, all of that effort, all those 60 hours of work, and using it to light a fire. So I can't use a fire to light the house so I can have some things that, you know, to be visible at night. How much would that effort get you? You'd imagine you'd have a whole lot of light, but when it's all said and done, your 60 hours of work would produce the same, allow, same amount of light as one light bulb. Okay, so we've got like, I don't know how many light bulbs in this room, but imagine one light bulb that you, you turn on and burn for 54 minutes. You would get the same amount of lumens out of that 60 hours worth of chopped wood. <laughs> That's crazy, right? To think about the, the power of a light bulb in comparison to the power of 60 hours worth of chopped wood that you let burn. Now, it would burn for a lot longer than 54 minutes, but the amount of light that's emitted, same as one light bulb going for 54 minutes. Now, fast forward over a few millennia of innovation from, you know, our forebears would have lit everything with, you know, a fire in a cave or whatever the case may be. We can get the invention of candles and we get the invention of, of gas lamps all the way to light bulbs. By 1990, those same 60 hours of work, so you work 60 hours at your job, which is like two weeks of work or thereabouts or a week and a half or maybe for some of you did work 60 hours this week. Thank you for being here, by the way. That labor of 60 hours, the amount of money you make, by 1990 would have produced the, equi the, the equivalent of 10 unbroken years of light. So light's gotten way cheaper. It's become way more available. You can see those satellite images from space at night and you know, North Korea versus South Korea. We, we have an incredible access to light in our world today. Think about how it transforms our, our lives. The ability to hit a switch and turn on a light bulb means that instead of going to bed when the sun goes down, you can stay up and you can read. You can stay up and play games with your family. You can stay up and watch TV. It just opens up a, a whole new world of possibilities having, having light. I spent a little bit of time in Papua New Guinea with some, some missionaries, and you know, they had sort of solar-powered stuff and batteries. But more or less, you know, once the sun went down, you'd maybe stay up for an hour and then go to bed. Since it's on the equator, sun goes down 6.30. By 7.30, you go to bed, and you get plenty of sleep. You wake up at like 5 with the sun. It's actually kind of nice. But what was once, once a luxury, having light, is now something we take for granted, something that we don't even think about. We only notice it when it's not there, like when a, a hurricane comes through and knocks all the power out. Only then do we notice the absence of the, light, the lights working. We have to burn candles, and we become incredibly grateful for the simple things of life. By the way, those same 60 hours that would have once produced 54 minutes of light, now with LED bulbs and all of the innovations we have, would produce 52 years of light. If you devoted the 60 hours worth of wages to just running a light bulb, you'd get 52 years. We have it pretty good, don't we? 
Well, our text today is built around this image of light, comparing us as Christians to lights in a dark world. Just as light has radically transformed our world, so Christians and our witness in the world radically transforms the world in which we live. Ephesians 5, and we're really looking at verses 8 to 14. A couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 to 7 about the call for us to walk in love, to, to have holy love in an unholy world. This week, we're, we're, we're hearing the call that's coming through the book of Ephesians for us to walk as children of light. Just to remind you, the second half of Ephesians is built around this motif, this theme of, of walk. Like, hey, here's all the riches we have in Christ. Here's the prosperity gospel that has made us spiritually rich, that we have all the blessings of Christ in heavenly places. Now, here's how we ought to live. And how do we live? Well, we walk. We live our daily lives. We walk in unity, we saw in Ephesians 4. We walk in newness, not the way we used to be. We walk in genuine love for one another, not taking advantage of people and just satisfying our lusts. But the riches of the gospel also compel us to walk as light. The gospel changes us and it calls us to live differently and to live differently in regards to this world in which God has placed us. We're called to live as light. Now, that sounds like a good thing. We'd be like, hey, live as light. Like, yeah, I'm going to live as light. Okay, well, what does that mean? How do we go about living as light? Do we walk around with, like, light bulbs on our head or, like, dress up as, like, what does this mean to live as light? Does it mean we just, like, are just disgustingly happy all the time? We just go around smiling and laughing and just positive and encouraging. Like, I don't know that that's what that means. I don't know this is a call for us to be fake and pretend that everything's great in our lives. And we're just, Christians sometimes lament. Right? We, we face the events of what happened this past week in shooting in a Christian school, and there's real lament and sorrow and pain that we experience as Christians. There's real evil and horror that we, we come face to face with. The call to walk as light is not a call to just be upbeat and positive and happy and don't worry. No, it's a call for us to live lives that are holy, that are radically different, that, that shine out in a, in a world that is dark, a world where there is no hope, where there is no holiness, where there is no ultimate meaning. We've got the outline, by the way, there in your, your bulletin, and that's for you to take notes. The, the, the questions on the back, those are the questions we'll be going through Wednesday as we jump back into our fellowship groups. And Man, I'm excited to jump back into those. I, I love our fellowship group. It's been such a blessing to me personally to be able to come to a group and just be in the group and not have to preach or lead it, just be, be, be there. I'd encourage you as a church family to jump into those as well. I encourage you to take notes this morning. So let's just consider some truths. What does it mean for us to live as light? Well, first truth I want us to consider here is that light radiates into the darkness. That's just sort of what light does. And I'm sure scientists could tell us more about light as a wave and light as a particle and all these things that I can't wrap my, my little brain around. But this is the idea that we get in verses 7 through 10. It says, okay, don't be partakers with them, with the sons of disobedience, with those who are engaged in immorality and sin and rebellion against God. Verse 8 tells us why. You were sometimes, you used to be darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Like, you're light, so live like light, right? You're holy, so live like you're holy. You're a saint, so live like a saint. Walking as children of light is, let this light be displayed. It's not just sort of this hypothetical, theoretical. Christians are sort of theoretically light. No, he's saying, you are light. You are to have a life that radiates with the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God. We get this idea of radiance in, in verse 9. The fruit of the Spirit, which probably the better reading here is the fruit of light. 
So light has this effect, this radiance that comes from it. The effects of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is the way that our light radiates out to where it is visible. Light radiates into the darkness. Look at those, those, those characteristics in verse 9. Goodness. This, this generosity and benevolence we, we saw in the end of Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. What a different attitude than a world that is all about vengeance and all about tit for tat. A world that is all about, you do this to me, I'm going to get back at you. And if you escalate it, I'm going to escalate it. And if, if this side of the political spectrum does it, well, then we're going to go, we're going to one-up and do it even more. Goodness, kindness, mercy. He mentions also there in verse 9, righteousness, being, living lives in accordance with God's law. That's radically different than a world that disregards God's law. Truth, living in accordance with the gospel. So let's just break this down a little bit. Verse 8 makes a statement, you used to be darkness, but now you are light. It doesn't just say you are like light, or you are now in the light, but you are light. You used to be darkness. Now, in the context of Ephesians, darkness is a symbol for our depravity, for our ignorance, for our life without God. Back in Ephesians 4, just look up a few verses there. Speaking of the lost, in verse 17, he says, I testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk, not as the other Gentiles, as the pagans walk in the vanity of their mind, the futility of their thinking, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's a darkness. Living life without the light. Living life without God. This, this ignorance of God's truth, this ignorance of the gospel. You see, before we come to Christ, before conversion, and by the way, if you're here today, you're not a, not a Christian, there's never been a time that you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith. What I'm about to say is describing where you are in your life. We're not just in a dark environment. We ourselves are darkness. Ephesians 2 also describes our condition without Christ. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. You has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 11 also talks about our condition without Christ. It says, remember that in time past you were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. According to the assessment of God, without Jesus, we're spiritually dead. Without Jesus... We're on the outside, we are foreigners, we're, we're outcasts. Without Jesus, we're in darkness. Now, you might say, that doesn't seem to, my, my life is actually pretty good. Like, I'm a good parent, I, I'm a good spouse, like, I work hard. This doesn't seem to make sense, but here's the question. Are you going to accept God's assessment of your condition or erect your own assessment of your condition? According to God's word, this is who we are without Christ. And Christians, you say, well, like, thankfully, I have come to the light. Hey, this is who you would be without Jesus. This is who you'd be without God's grace. In darkness, in depravity. You know what this does when we recognize, I used to be darkness? This totally rips away any, any fig that we could have of, of taking credit for our own salvation. Any idea that I'm better than other people. You know the one condition for getting in as a Christian? Is recognizing that I'm not and recognizing that I don't deserve it and recognizing that I need grace. Grace and pride are mutually exclusive. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So just reflect on that, Christian. I used to be darkness. 
Uh, I was like someone who was lost in a labyrinth of cave without a flashlight, trying to find my way, to, and there was no hope of me ever getting out. Someone had to come in and rescue me. Remember that story a few years ago with the, the soccer team in Thailand, and they went back in the cave, and then the rains came, and the waters flooded? Like, they had zippo chance of getting out there alive. They had to be rescued from the darkness. And in the same way, our only hope was for someone to come to us where we were at great expense to their own, their own selves, at great danger to themselves, to bring the light and to bring us to safety. And that's what Jesus has done to us. And he doesn't just simply bring us to light. He turns us into light. Look back in the text, Ephesians 5, verse 8. You used to be darkness, but now you are light. There's been a change in our identity, a change in who we are, a change in our nature. Let's just say we're in the light. God, when God saves us, God doesn't save us simply by changing our environment because the environment is not really the problem. It's not just, well, I've got to live in a bad world. If I lived in a good world, I would be good. God saves us not by changing our environment, but by changing us. In our conversion, how does God save us? He says, let there be light, and there was light. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God who declared, let me just read it, 2 Corinthians 4, The God who shines in the darkness has shined in our hearts. He talks about if our gospel be hid, verse 3, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glory, uh, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light, has shined in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember when you came to faith in Christ, heard the gospel, somebody witnessed to you, you were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, and you put your faith in Jesus. You know what happened in that moment? God hit the light switch for you. God did a work in your heart. God did something that you could not have done for yourself to bring you to faith in Jesus. By God's grace... We see for the first time our true condition of sinners. We, before that, we thought, ah, I'm pretty good. Then we realize, I'm blind and I'm lost. We see by God's grace, with the eyes of faith, the all-sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross for us and the reality of his resurrection. We won't grasp that without the light switch being hit. So in Ephesians 5, it says, you used to be, but now. You used to be, but now. Is there a, but, is there a I used to be, but now that has happened in your life? This but now contrasts with the you used to be like midnight to midday. We're transferred out of the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, according to Colossians 1. We have a new master. We have a new citizenship, a new hope, a new destiny, a new affection, a new treasure. Everything is different because of God's work in the gospel for us. So he says, we are now light in the Lord. What does light do? Light shines. Now, have you ever thought about how this connects with other things the Bible says about light? In in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Well, how can Jesus be the light of the world? And then also Matthew 5 says, ye are the light of the world. And here it says, you are now light. Like, Jesus is the light, I'm the light. Which is it? And the answer is yes. Jesus is the light. He comes to dwell within us. And we, we then display his light, or to change the metaphor, like the moon reflects the sun, we reflect the glory of Christ. We're mirrors not flashlights. Like the moon reflects the sun, so we reflect Christ's radiant glory. So that's our our identity. Then verses 
The end of verse 8 down to verse 10 gives us the responsibility we have to live in accordance with that. We've had this radical change that's happened. That radical change changes the way that we live. Walk as children of light. Now, this idea of children of, this is sort of Hebrew speak, to say you're characterized by. Just like a, a son sort of bears the resemblance of a father, so we bear this resemblance of light. It says walk, live like this. Be consistent is what this call is. Be who you are as Christians. We're not called to sort of become something other than we are, but we're called to simply become who we are in Christ, to live out our true identity. Just like a light bulb has sort of one function, I was trying to think, is there literally anything else you can do with a light bulb? Like, I guess you could shoot it with a BB gun or throw it at a wall, but it's really useless for any other function except to be a light bulb. As Christians, we are called to be light to display the glory of Christ. That's our ultimate purpose, to display the glory of the one who's called us out of darkness into the light. This is a call for us to be radiant. So verse 9 is to, 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 to bear this fruit of light, this goodness, this righteousness, this truth. The point here is children of light will display the fruit of light. How do you know that you're a child of light? How do you know you're a Christian? Is you increasingly see goodness and righteousness and truth in your life. And if those things are completely absent, beloved, you need to step back and ask the question, am I really a child of light? Am I really a child of God? If there's no evidence for it, if this is, I'm light, but there's no light being displayed in my life, are you really light? Are you still darkness? You need to ask the question, not just assume. Verse 10 continues, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, notice verse 9 in in parentheses. Just sort of grammatically an aside. So we could, we could say this, walk as children of light by proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So how, how do I go about walking in light? Because that seems kind of a little abstract. By proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, by, by testing and determining what is pleasing to God and then doing it. All in all, if you look at your Bible, your Bible is, it seems like a big book, but as complex as life is, this is a pretty short book. Think of all the complex situations you're going to find yourself in this week. Maybe you're in the medical field and you face these you know, tough ethical dilemmas of like, is this the right thing to do or is that the right thing to do? And there's not like a verse that tells me exactly what I'm supposed to do. Or you're at your job and you're like, mm, this seems just a little shady, but I don't have a verse that tells me here's exactly how I ought to live. Or you're trying to work through a complex relational problem and it's like, it's not immediately clear, like it's messy and there's sin on all sides. Like, what do I do? It's not as simple as open the Bible and there's a verse and I'm going to mindlessly follow it. Sometimes it requires trying to find out what is it that's going to be pleasing to God and then doing it. Reasoning from this is who God is and this is what I'm to be in the world. And so working that out in the complexities of modern life, here's what I'm supposed to do. So the way we could render verse 10 is try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, not just follow the rules, but knowing the character of God so well, you're like, oh, I know what will please him. Those of you who've been married a long time, you you know sort of implicitly what will please and delight your spouse. Now, I'm still, I guess, probably in many of your eyes, newly married, been married for coming up to seven years, if I'm doing the math right, um, in December, and still learning one another what we each like and what, oh, we could go to that restaurant and order that off the menu or whatever the case may be. What we still haven't figured out is, like, what to watch on Amazon Prime. Like, hey, what do you want to watch tonight? I don't know. What would you like? I don't know. And so we, like, watch the same thing we watched last night. But the more you're with someone, the more you just know implicitly. You don't have to ask, like, what's pleasing. 
the more we walk with God, the more we know his heart and his character and his attributes and his word, the more we will just know what is pleasing to him in a given situation. That's what walking in the light entails. One of the marks of a child of the light is he desires eagerly to please God. He will discover and then do what is pleasing to God. This goes beyond just legalistic rulemaking and standard setting. Sometimes as Christians, we're like, I want to rule for, what am I supposed to do here, here, and here? And God's like, I'm not giving you that rule. I want you to walk in wisdom. I want you to actually love me and rely on me rather than just getting a rule book that's been handed down. It's about a heart passion for bringing glory to God in every area of life. Now, the standard for figuring out what's pleasing to God, let me tell you something it's not going to be. It's not going to be your feelings. Sometimes we can sort of sentimentalize our feelings. Oh, it's the Spirit, and God told me to... Our feelings are like a very inaccurate thermometer. Um, you know those like temple thermometers that we all got during COVID? I found out with us now having Timothy to be like, that's actually not super accurate. It's like all over the place. You take something differently. It's like a bathroom scale that sometimes you get onto it and it's like, hey, I weigh 120. And then you get on and it's like, oh, 220 now. That's what our feelings are like. They're not a good barometer. They're not a good thermometer for determining what is pleasing to God. God's word is the foundation and we reason from that. It can't be culture. Everyone thinks this is okay now because our culture is arrayed against God and is itself in darkness. Now, here's my point. Light radiates into the darkness. If you're a child of light, live like a child of light. If you're a light bulb, shine. If you're a Christian, display the, the truth and the goodness and the righteousness of God in our lives. Let it be evident. Let it be seen. Let it be visible. Let it radiate from your life to where people look at us and they're like, there's something, something different. Which brings us really to our, our second truth about walking in the light, is that light contrasts with darkness. Okay, these are really profound. Man, light and darkness, they're not the same things. That really cleared some stuff up for me. Light contrasts with darkness. I'll pick up in verse 11. And, so connecting these thoughts, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So notice we're getting this contrast now that's being displayed between children of light and the children of darkness, between light and darkness, this, this back and forth comparison that goes on. This ties back into what we reread the passage earlier, verses 4 and 5, those who don't know Christ are just sort of indulging the, the lusts of the flesh and engaged in immorality and sexual sin and covetousness. He says, don't have fellowship with those, those works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, notice it does not say, have no fellowship with the unfruitful workers of darkness, but the unfruitful works of darkness. It's the sins that we are to have no contact with. Now, this is a call for us to be separate from the evil of this world. It says here in verse 11, have no fellowship. Now, verse 7 says, don't be partakers with them. Don't be engaged with those, those workers. Don't, don't be engaged with the sin that they're committing. Don't be a partaker. Don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Both verses 7 and verse 11 are a call for us to be radically separate from sin. A call to radical holiness and separateness in this world. Paul makes this point very forcefully in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he asks this question, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Like, those are opposites. What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, with Satan? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Hey, we live in the same world, but we're not going to inherit the same kingdom. 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Like There's no, there's complete antithesis between light and darkness. There can be, there can be no participation in, well, we'll dabble in the same sins. No, there's to be a, a radical difference. Now, in the context, what's Paul talking about? Verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 5. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, jesting. It's like those have no place in the life of a Christian. They're commonplace in the world. They're accepted in the world. They're celebrated in the world. No place in the life of a Christian. They don't glorify God. They don't serve our neighbor. That's why Paul calls them unfruitful. At the end of the day, lust never satisfies. At the end of the day, sin only brings greater sorrow and ultimately eternal separation from God. They don't glorify God. They don't bring lasting joy. So be separate. You know, the very reason Paul has to tell us this, tells us there is a danger for us in being shaped by the world around us. There's a danger in us in being compromised by the crimes of the culture in which we live. And see, we can convince ourselves that we're different because, well, I go to church and I don't do this, that, or the other thing. But let's be honest, so often, even if there's a list of things of like these worst things we don't do that the, the culture does, so often in our thinking, we are being conformed to this world. We are being conformed to this age rather than transformed by a renewed mind. You see, we're constantly being challenged by this world. We're constantly being catechized by advertisements. We're constantly being evangelized by entertainment to believe a false gospel. We're constantly being discipled by our preferred media outlet. We easily dance to the rhythms of TV programming and election cycles. We're cut to the shape drawn by the invisible hand of the markets. Twitter teaches us to reduce our thoughts to snack-sized snippets of just opinion presented as truth. Instagram instructs us to live life before a lens. Facebook enslaves us to performing before a virtual audience, seeking people's applause and, and approval and admiration. I'm not saying that these platforms are bad, but I want us just to consider, how are they shaping us? How are they changing the way that we're thinking? You see, all these practices in media shape our hearts. They do. They make us without our even realizing it, fellow partakers in the world in ways we don't even realize. And I think those are the most dangerous ways of conformity to the culture. So it's easy for us as Christians to say, homosexuality, that's sin, we're not going to have anything to do with that. Or sexual immorality, that's obviously wrong. right? Or stealing, we're not going to do that. But think of all the subtle ways that we don't even recognize because they are so commonplace. A goldfish, I mean, I've never talked to a goldfish, but I would imagine if you talk to a goldfish, he wouldn't notice the water that he's swimming in. A bird is not paying a whole lot of attention to the sky through which it flies. And as Christians, we often don't realize the beliefs that we have just assumed from the world around us because we live in this world and think, well, this is just the way things are. After a while, when you live in your house, you stop noticing the paint on the walls. Likewise, we stop seeing the influences on us. Let me give you an example. Just about... Everyone in our culture has sort of taken for granted the message that we ought to be happy, no matter what, that that's sort of the chief end of man is to be happy here and now, rather than the chief end of man being to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
We so readily internalize the mantra that we should be whoever we dream ourselves to be and to be authentic and to live out our own reality. We've accepted the lie that products and stuff can give us meaning as seen by the fact that we always are having to upgrade to the newest and latest and best. Not wrong to upgrade to, upgrade to new things, but this notion that, oh, I need to have that. Why? Why do I need that? We've embraced the tape measure of popularity and power to determine the success of what we do. And I think perhaps one of the most insidious ways that we're shaped by the culture is we look at sort of our cultural opponents. So they're bad, and we become the mirror opposite of that which we most despise. We become the mirror image of the cultural foes we most greatly fear. We react with the same kind of fear and outrage and anger and arguments oftentimes as those who reject God. So when this says don't be partakers with them, we're not just take, talking about a vice list of really bad things, but all of the subtle ways. It, it, for people in Ephesus, it was the rampant sexual immorality around them in the temple of Diana. For us, it's the rampant consumerism and outrage and anger. And as I sort of stare at what's going on in the media and in politics, I see both sides are just a mirror opposite images of one another. Not to say that the vices are symmetrical, but to say that so much of it is the same outrage, anger, pettiness. Before I step on any more landmines, let's move on. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather reprove them. There's this, this, this contrast with the, with the darkness. You see, we're only going to be able to influence this world if we are distinct from it. And here's the amazing thing the Bible does. Because you could read that text and be like, great, we're all going to move to Montana and move on to like a Christian commune together. And no contact with the outside world. We're going to cut the internet cable, smash our phones, and be a bunch of Luddites. The Bible does not call us to isolation. Nor does the Bible call us to assimilation. It calls us to live holy lives in the world. In Jesus' words from the, his high priestly prayer in, in John 17, he says, I, I'm praying, Father, that you wouldn't take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. That we would be in this world, that we would have relationships in this world, that we would have involvement in the culture, but we would not be of the world. That's not our identity. That's not who we are. So we can only be influential insofar as we are distinct. The most powerful weapon we have in our arsenal to change this culture it's not voting. It's not social media. It's a holy life. It's the most powerful thing you can be. A holy life and the gospel on our lips. Our holy presence in the world is to be like a floodlight in a basement. Now, we don't get basements here. But we had a basement growing up, and it was kind of gnarly. It was really dirty and dusty. And we had a, a well, like literally an open well in the floor of the basement. You look down, there's the water. You turn the light on, and you see all kinds of sketchy stuff going on down there. Right? It's like when you shine the flashlight behind the refrigerator, you're like, oh, that's what happened to my grilled cheese sandwich three months ago. Our presence in this world, living holy lives, does that. It automatically contrasts with the world. People are like, man, we're living these holy lives. It contrasts the relative unholiness of this world. You see, you can be convinced that, man, I'm a pretty good athlete. Until you go work out with, like, a marathon runner, and you're like, oh, man. I've never worked. I've never really worked out before in my life. You think I'm pretty good at projects until you work with someone like CJ who really knows what they're doing, and you're like, "Ugh, this is embarrassing." What I what I've done here with my little project. Same way, the world can be convinced that they are good without God until they meet someone who truly is good because of the work of Christ. Until they meet someone who truly is kind, who's truly been transformed by the gospel. 
When they run into someone who's genuinely holy, it will reveal they're unholy. And that doesn't mean they're going to like it. Okay, so First Peter says they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. They may think you're a weirdo and a nutcase and a bigot and an extremist, but they will notice the difference in our lives. Our lives should say to the world, there's a better way to live. We're no different. We don't have any light to contrast with the darkness. It also means we have to be involved. Sometimes we can be so focused on the kingdom to come. We're going to go to heaven one day, so let's just hunker and put our heads down and wait for the rapture. Or the other extreme can be, the kingdom's all now, and so we're just going to be totally, boom, involved in the world. The Bible says we live in this kingdom that is thy kingdom come, and yet, hey, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come. Like, it's inaugurated but not fully established like we live between the, 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 the already of Jesus has come and we're saved and his kingdom's inaugurated and he rules and reigns and the not yet and one day he is coming to remake this whole world. And so we live in the world but not of the world. We live waiting for the kingdom to come but living out a kingdom that's already here. I mean, think, think about it this way. First Peter says we're exiles. If people who've like had to flee war, you're in another country. Think about how an exile is different than a tourist. If you go to another country, you go as a tourist, tourists oftentimes will try to sort of fit in with the culture. They're like, oh, I'm going to sort of offensively buy the local outfit and pretend that I'm one. Everyone's like, oh, yep, there's a tourist, American with your camera and your fanny pack walking around, uh, taking pictures of everything that we look at every day. So we could try to be tourists in this world and be like, enjoy all the sights and, and, and sounds and, and opportunities. Think about how an exile is different than a citizen. A citizen finds their identity in the country in which they live. I'm an American citizen, and I'm proud of that fact. But as Christians, we are ultimately not citizens of the United States or of this world. We're citizens of heaven who have been temporarily exiled to a foreign country. An exile will often try to preserve something of their home country. They always have an eye on their home country. The longing of their heart is to ultimately go home. And that's how we are in this world. We're here, we're as exiles. We're here just for a few short years, and we should seek the good of the city, we should seek the good of our neighbors. We should seek them to, to win them to Christ. But ultimately, our home is in another world. Light must contrast with the darkness if it's to be called light. But let's come into a third truth. It's this. Light exposes the darkness. Verse 11 says, okay, have no fellowship with the works of darkness, but rather reprove, or we could even render it this way, expose them. Like the light that you turn on in the basement that shows all the sketchy things going on. Our lives should expose the evil of this world. We are called to expose the works of darkness for what they are. Now, this doesn't mean that you go start like a discernment blog and you just go around critiquing, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and negative, 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 negative. I'm going to show, sort of take the mask off everything. That's not what this is calling. This is not for us to self-righteously going around wagging a finger in the face of those who don't know Jesus and rebuking them for not living like Christians. Rather, this is about lovingly and persuasively helping those who don't know Jesus see the fact that they don't know Jesus. Those who are living in darkness, helping them realize that they really do live in darkness. Those who are sinners, helping them see the fact that they are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, we're to be like a, a doctor who diagnoses the disease before prescribing the cure, laying out the law of God and saying, here's what God expects. Look at how you fall short. Compared to everyone else, you're pretty good, but compared to God, oh man, you need a savior. 
exposing the evil works of darkness by our lives, but this is crucial also by our lips. See, sometimes we'll, we'll try to get ourselves off the hook of the call to evangelize by saying, well, I'm just going to live kind of a godly life and my neighbors will see that I'm a really nice neighbor and then they'll go get saved. Listen, nobody gets saved without the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People must hear the message of Jesus. And so our lives can open the door for our lips to speak the message. But verse 12 goes on to say something that's sort of puzzling. Okay, we've got to expose the works of darkness for it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So you could read that and be like, so we shouldn't ever talk about sin because it's so embarrassing and shameful, so we'll just, we won't say anything about it. We would have a contradiction because Paul literally just a few verses earlier named a bunch of sins that were prominent in his culture. He was not afraid to call out adultery and, and, and fornication and idolatry and all the things going on. If you read Romans 1, he's very explicit about a whole number of sins. So this doesn't mean don't ever talk about sin, don't ever name it. Rather, the point here is sin flourishes in the darkness, right? Uh, sin flourishes in the darkness like cockroaches flourish in dark corners, like disease flourishes in darkness. You get a dark, damp place, bad things happen in flourishing in disease. Saying sin flourishes in the darkness of shame and secrecy. And so it needs to be brought to the light. It's shame about sin because we're made in God's image. We know, like, nah, this isn't right, so we cover it in shame. Or another way that people cover sin today is, ironically and somewhat paradoxically, is I'm going to sort of shout my abortion, or I'm going to sort of live out loud, or I'm going to cut. And it's another way to sort of try to diminish the shame of sin. If I get everybody to approve my sin, then I won't feel ashamed of it anymore. Or cover it up. Whether sin's in the closet or out on the city square, it's still shameful, and we all know it. Paul's point is sin is shameful and in secret, and it needs to be brought into light if it's going to be remedied. He's also engaging in some hyperbole. If it's shameful to even talk about certain sins. By the way, we should never lose our sense of shame and recoiling at, at sin. But if it's a shame to talk about certain sins, how much more shameful is it to be engaged in them? And so Paul's point is we, we, we need to bring the sin to the light. If hearing about a horrible injury, if you've got an imagination, you hear about like a horrible you know, accident, someone breaks a if that makes you cringe, sort of the same, you're imagining what it would feel like. If hearing about it makes you, makes you cringe, how much worse is it to experience it? So if talking about sin is shameful, how much worse is it to be committing it? This, the point of verse 12 is to highlight the sinfulness of sin and the necessity of bringing it to the light. Light exposes the darkness. And listen, if we want to just live in this world and kind of get along with everyone, we're, we're missing the point of what God has called us to be. We're called to be lights, which means we're going to expose, which means we're going to point things out, which means we're going to have tough conversations. Not in an arrogant wag the finger in people's face, but humbly. Knowing that anything that's good in this world is good because God created it. And knowing as well that there is evil. And knowing that Jesus died to save sinners. So we lay down the lofty standard of God's Law. We use it like a level against a crooked wall, like an x-ray revealing a broken bone, like a light in a dark corner to expose the darkness. But we don't just stop there because I love how this section ends. Now, verses 13 and 14, I wrestled with like the last two weeks. I took last week off as a missions conference. Like, what does this mean? What do we what do we do with verses 13 and 14? But all things that are reproved, okay, that are exposed, that's the same word are made manifest by the lights. Okay, things are reproved or are made visible. 
For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And the way this literally reads in the Greek, for whatever is made manifest is light. So here's some darkness that's now revealed, and now it becomes light. Now, we're kind of stretching the bounds of metaphors. If you're like, well, I shine the light on stuff. It doesn't turn into light. But in Paul's metaphor, we're all mirrors, so to speak. And when the light hits the mirror, the mirror becomes a light. This is sweet. I love how he lands the plane here. Light not only exposes the darkness, but light transforms the darkness. Now, this doesn't do this for everyone, but for those who come in repentance faith, light transforms the darkness. It makes the darkness visible so that we can see the darkness for what it is. Like Jesus, we come to seek and to save that which is lost. We befriend those who don't know Christ. We build real relationships so we can speak the gospel. We, we show love. But the end of verse 13 is telling us this, that light not only exposes, but it transforms. Light makes the darkness into light. Everything that becomes visible is light, becomes light. This is really stunning. The reason we must expose sin is so that we can win sinners. That's the reason. The reason we call out sin is to call out to sinners and point them to Jesus. So look back in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, you used to be darkness, and now you are light. Now, he says, everything that is revealed also becomes light. This is pretty sweet. When we expose evil with our godly lives and with gospel words, we not only make sin visible, we bring sinners to Christ. And that is what we're after. That's why I say the goal here is not just go start a blog and point out everything that's wrong in the world. The goal here is to expose evil so evil can be transformed into light. So sinners can be brought to Christ. So those who were once darkness may become light. That's our goal, is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and be transformed. Now, there, there's obviously a condition because you're like, well, everyone who's, everyone who's exposed then becomes light. Well, this is, a, this, is, this is assuming that there is repentance and faith and the let there be light happening in the heart. But this is the method God uses as Christians speaking the gospel. Christians speaking the gospel. Now, this week, we've got a really easy way to do this. Go to your neighbor, go to your coworker, and say, hey, what are you doing for Easter Sunday? Would you come to church with me? Okay, that's not the gospel message, but next Sunday, we're going to declare the, the resurrection of Jesus, right? The death, the burial, the resurrection for sinners, and we're going to call sinners to repentance and faith. And Lord willing, if people stay awake through my droning on, like, People will hear the gospel, and you've got an, an opportunity to follow up and have conversation about that. Such a simple way to help bring friends under the sound of the gospel. Like That's a really easy thing to do. Will you come to church with me? To begin shining that light, to begin pointing people to Jesus. And listen, if you have come to faith in Jesus yourself, you have what you need to be able to tell someone else how to come to faith in Jesus. That's what verse 14 is about. Wherefore he saith... Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Christ shall shine upon you. Paul's either quoting from Psalm 61 or an early Christian hymn. He's quoting something they would have recognized. But here's the point. He's saying, there's this call that says, Awake the one who sleeps, arise from the dead. Okay, in the Bible, sleep and death are often paralleled. He says, remember in your life when the let there be light happened and the light switch was turned on and the alarm clock went off and you were awakened from your slumber of sin? Remember when Jesus said, come forth and you arose and you, you were born again? Says, God, what God did for you, he can do for anybody. 
The same God who said, let there be light in your life, can say, let there be light in anybody's life. So awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light, and the light will shine upon you and through you and in you. The point here is saying, this is what it did for me. I have been transformed. I've been transferred from darkness to light. I've experienced the gospel in my life, and you can too. So darkness, death, they form this powerful image for our lost condition. And what's required is an awaking. What is required is a resurrection. What is required is an illumination that God can do. Those are all things that God must do for us. We cannot save ourselves. So we've come to the light. You say, I'm a Christian here this morning, and I'm looking out over the auditorium. I know just about everybody here. This is the message we take to the world, but I don't know your heart. Maybe you come to church week after week after week after week, and you're still living in darkness. Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Rising from sleep and death is essential to experiencing the light of Christ. So we've come to the light. Now we call others to come to the light. And if you're living in darkness, I would plead with you today, come to Jesus in repentance. He died on the cross to forgive your sin, and he arose from the dead so that you could have life forevermore. And Christians, we can trust God to do the same resurrection work in the hearts of people as he has done in our lives. What does it mean to live as light? What does it mean to be a living light? It means radiating out into the darkness. The light that the Spirit produces in our lives has changed life. It means contrasting with the darkness, living a life that's different than the world, but still involved with the world. It means exposing the darkness by a life that is different, that contrasts, but also by being courageous enough to speak up with the gospel. And light, by the grace of God, can transform the darkness. I find this super encouraging. I don't know about you. To think about what God can do. Because we can look at what's happening in our world, and, and, and I think we have you know, bad news bias and all these things like, oh, it's just awful and dark and bad and blah, blah. God is still working. God is still working. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light, is still saying, let there be light, and there is light. So may God help us to live.